Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. Today we're going to be reading pages 84 through 92 of the Four Crafts or the Four Crafts of the Devil's Kingdom. Lawyer Craft in the Book of Mormon. Apparently the lawyers played the same role in the Book of Mormon days as they did in the Bible. Some of the most powerful accusations against lawyers come from the book of Alma, who records that Amulek minced no words about how powerful and detrimental their influence would be to their nation. And now behold, I say unto you, that the foundation of the destruction of this people is beginning to be laid by the unrighteousness of your lawyers and your judges. Alma chapter 10, verse 27. This accusation may be hard to understand when one considers all of the problems and struggles that both the Nephites and Lamanites had with wickedness, wars, civil commotion, and final destruction. It seems to be rather reckless and thoughtless, a rather reckless and thoughtless statement to blame the lawyers for their downfall and destruction, but Amulek was no inexperienced fool, and his charges proved to be true, as the following passage illustrates. Nevertheless, there were some among them, the people of the land of Ammonihah, who thought to question them, question Amulek, etc., that by their cunning devices they might catch them in their words, that they might find witness against them, and that they might deliver them to their judges, that they might be judged according to the law, and that they might be slain or cast into prison according to the crime which they could make appear or witness against them. Now it was those men who, who sought to destroy them, who were lawyers, who were hired or appointed by the people to administer the law at their times of trials, or at the trials of the crimes of the people before the judges, page 85. Now these lawyers were learned in all the art and cunning of the people, and this was to enable them that they might be skillful in their profession. And it came to pass that they began to question Amulek, that thereby they might make him cross his words, or contradict the words which he should speak. And now they knew not Amulek, they knew not that Amulek could know of their designs. But it came to pass, as they began to question him, he perceived their thoughts, and he said unto them, O ye wicked and perverse generation, 
you lawyers and hypocrites, for ye are laying the foundation of the devil, for ye are laying traps and snares to catch the holy ones of God. Ye are laying plans to pervert the ways of righteous, of the righteous, and to bring down the wrath of God upon your heads, even to the utter destruction of this people. Alma chapter 10, verses 13 through 18. Amulek was a servant of God who went among the church that was in apostasy. And the people that he was speaking to should have been the leaders of the people in righteousness, but instead they were using words to try to destroy the testimony of the prophet of God and the work of the prophet of God. Continuing, Amulek makes it clear that lawyers were using the law for selfish reasons, such as, number one, they used cunning devices to catch people in their words. Number two, they sought for ways that people could be a witness against themselves. Number three, they sought for ways to bring the law against the people. Number four, they intended to cast the leaders and their followers into prison or to slay them. And these were the leaders of the apostates that were being led by Alma and Amulek, not their true and righteous people. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think people should realize that the true servants of God don't always lead the majority of the people but call the majority of the people to repentance. Number five, they sought to destroy the prophets of God. Number six, they, they thought themselves to be learned in all things. See, they were too learned to be taught. Joseph Smith had a huge problem with people who knew too much, like Sidney Rigdon. Sidney Rigdon was a Campbellite preacher <clears throat> who carried on the traditions he learned in as being a, a leader of a congregation and tried to bring that into the restoration. And he still affects the people today because people believe that the lectures on faith, oh, that's the doctrine part of the, the doctrine and covenants. No, that was what Sidney Rigdon wrote up. That wasn't from Joseph Smith, and it contradicts other things in other places in Scripture, in the Doctrine and Covenants even. And so one of the things that Heber J. Grant did that I agree with, which is very few things, that Heber J. Grant took the lectures on faith out of the Doctrine and Covenants. Because even though they were purported to be written by Joseph Smith, they contradicted the revelations of God that Joseph Smith received as part of the Restoration. We find the roots of many things in the lectures on faith that come from Sidney Rigdon, not Joseph Smith. Number seven, they made righteous acts appear to be crimes. Number eight, they used trickery, craftness, and wicked means to destroy good people. 
Surprising as it may seem, most of the people didn't want to believe Amulek. They appeared to be as clouded in their beliefs and understanding as were the lawyers, for the story of Alma continues with, quote, and this is on page 86, but also you can find this in the scriptures. Let's see. I just have to go down to where the quote is here. It's Alma chapter 10, verses 24 through 29. So, but if you're reading along in the book, we're on page 86. And now it came to pass that the, that the people were more angry with Amulek, and they cried out, saying, This man doth revile against our laws, which are just, and our wise lawyers whom we have selected. See, this, this uh, record of the tribe of, of Ephraim and Manasseh, this was preserved for our day in these latter days, in these end times. We should liken these things unto ourselves and say to ourselves, are we guilty of the things that these people who are fighting against Alma and Amulek are guilty of? These prophets that come to you they come outside of the organization that call you to repentance. Are they reviling against your false traditions and the hedges that your lawyers and judges and priest crafters and lawyer crafters are they are they fighting against what these man made laws are? I mean you might think that they're truly from God, but there's a lot of things in the restoration that they will not teach you. Things that they have changed, like Jesus being Jehovah. That was solidified in, in uh, Brighamite culture after Brigham was long dead. The whole idea that Jesus and Jehovah are the same person started in the 1880s shortly after the death of Brigham Young, who died August 29, 1877. During the reign of, of John Taylor, these perversions began to creep into the, into the gospel. And then by uh, the time of James Talmadge, who was an apostle in the Brighamite church, the, the fact that Jesus and Jehovah are the same person was solidified, even though... It contradicts Ether chapter 3 and Moses chapter 6 and other places where Jesus is clearly the son of Jehovah. When Jehovah had appeared to many before the flood, walking face to face with Enoch and Lamech and Adam and others, and then appearing with the body to Abraham and having a meal of meat and dairy with him, Around the same time, Mohanroy Mori Ankmer was seeing Jesus who said that he was a spirit being and he would come in the flesh at a later point. That he had not yet gained a body. This is before the resurrection. Jesus Christ comes before his mortality. 
He appears to Mohanre Moriankumar and he says, Never at any time have I appeared unto man. This is my spirit being. Yet Jehovah had appeared many times before that point to many people with a body of flesh and bones, even sitting down and having a meal of meat and dairy with Abraham. See, the Brighamite Church and the other branches of the Restoration will teach you that that they had the, the keys of authority, that they were the true secession after, after the prophet of the Restoration had been murdered along with his brother. But they will not bring out the point that Doctrine and Covenants section 124, Jesus says to build a temple whereby the Father can come dwell therein, that he might restore that which was lost unto you or that which was taken away, even the fullness of the priesthood. So Jesus is saying, Joseph, build a temple for my Father to come and restore this fullness, which in other places, Joseph Smith taught that the fullness had been given to the early prophets of the Old Testament time by the laying on of God's own hand upon the mountain. That's how I received the fullness of the priesthood. I was taken in the flesh upon a place which is called Mount Vashel, which means beautiful God, into the temple of the Father, and I did kneel before him, and he did lay his physical hands upon my physical head, and confer upon me the fullness of the priesthood and all of the keys of the kingdom. That never happened to Brigham Young or to anyone else who came out of Nauvoo. In section 124, Jesus says, If you do not do these things, I will reject you with your dead. I will reject the church with their dead. It's right in DNC section 20, uh, 124. Jesus says, All they who hinder this work will be cursed to the third and fourth generation. One generation of Moses walking around with the Israelites in the wilderness was 40 years, and four generations is 160 years. And Joseph Smith taught the church had been rejected by 1843 which the Brighamites cover up but you can find that in RLDS history Lyman White I believe is the one that recorded it from the words of Joseph Smith Brigham Young claimed to receive the fullness of the priesthood in the red brick store by Joseph Smith but the problem with that is in order for Joseph Smith to get the fullness of the priesthood he had to lead the people in building the temple whereby the Father, the Most High, could come to other and that he might restore it. When Joseph was murdered on June 27, 1844, the temple wasn't even close to being complete. They just started working on the second story of that temple, which means the Shekinah glory of God never rested upon that temple which means the Father never came to restore the fullness of the priesthood. So how could Joseph Smith, who had not received the fullness of the priesthood, 
give it to Brigham Young outside of the temple when God said, when Jesus said that God the Father had to come do that, the Most High, before the temple was ever finished. Joseph Smith did not have the authority to give the fullness of the priesthood to Brigham Young in the red brick store, which is where their claim to authority comes from. It was a lie. And all they who hindered this work, which were the saints themselves, were cursed to the third and fourth generation, and that curse had to deal with not receiving the fullness of the priesthood and being rejected as a church with your dead. It's all in section 124. And 160 years after Joseph Smith said the church had been rejected, as recorded by Lyman White, which you will not find in the history of the church on the Brighamite side, but you will find it in the history of the church in the RLDS side, the Community of Christ side, 1843 to 2003 when I received the fullness of the priesthood and was given the keys of the kingdom and the church and the priesthood. And the heavens were again uh, again began to be opened at that point. Like really opened. And it took another 10 years for me to find out who I really am because I just thought I was getting my calling and election made sure because it talks about that in my patriarchal blessing, which I received in 1997. But in 1995, before I had converted to Joseph Smith or the Restoration, God took me up in the spirit and took me to the Salt Lake Temple in Salt Lake City, Utah, and took me into the highest room in the temple, which is on the eastern side in the middle tower of that temple. And Jesus Christ brought me up into that room, and I walked in the middle tower there, and I heard the voice of God as I entered into his presence, and he told me that I would be the last prophet before the return of Jesus Christ which really confused me because at the time I was a Baptist and very, very anti-Mormon. I thought Joseph Smith was a false prophet. It wasn't until a year later in 96 that I actually humbled myself enough, or God humbled myself enough, where I'd ask and receive a confirmation of the Spirit that Joseph really was a true prophet, and the Book of Mormon really is true. And so in 2003, when I was sealed up unto the Father himself and received the keys of the kingdom, the priesthood, and the church, it wasn't until 2013, 10 years later, that God showed me who I am and why I was called, why I was foreordained to do this ministry that I'm doing now and many other things, and who I am. I am an eyewitness of the Father and the Son. I am the second apostle or witness of the Father. I am a direct descendant of David, 
and I am a direct descendant of Ephraim and Manasseh. I am an eyewitness of the Father and the Son in the flesh, and I am calling out the remnant of the house of Israel that Isaiah saw so that Zion can be born in the, in the desert and in the wilderness, which is what Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 35 and many other places. It'll be a tenth of a tenth. It will not be a large number of people. And we're not going to go into the desert and wilderness until everything has fallen apart. The gathering place is Emory County, Utah. I've said it before and I'll say it again. God told me in 2016 to warn people to leave the cities. And the populated areas and that this is the gathering place for the remnant of the house of Israel. Those who will be part of the redemption of Zion. And God has given me a lot of truth and no, I don't have all the truth. But he's given me a lot of the mysteries which Joseph Smith talked about. He showed me the perversion of the laws that the Gentiles have have done within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the other restoration groups. And he's, he has me calling the people to repentance. But the leaders are too wise and too powerful and too big to be taught. just the same way as the people that Amulek was being sent to were too wise and too powerful to be taught. And they cried out saying, This man doth revile against our laws, our traditions, which are just, and our wise lawyers whom we have selected or sustained. But Amulek stretched forth his hand and cried the mightier unto them, saying, O ye wicked and perverse generation, why hath Satan got such great hold upon your hearts? Why will ye yield yourselves unto him that that he may have power over you, to blind your eyes that that ye will not understand the words which are spoken according to their truth? For behold... Have I testified against your law? Do ye not understand? Ye say that I have spoken against your law or your traditions, but I have not. But I have spoken in favor of your law to your condemnation. And now behold, I say unto you that the foundation of the destruction of this people is beginning to be laid by the unrighteousness of your lawyers and your judges. And now it came to pass that when Amulek had spoken these words, the people cried out against him, saying, Now we know that this man is a child of the devil. For he hath lied unto us, for he hath spoken against our law, I would would insert traditions, and now he says, says that he has not spoken against it and again he has reviled against our lawyers and our judges or our righteous leaders 
That's Alma chapter 10, verses 24 through 29. It is interesting to note that many similarities between the lawyers in Christ's time and those in the days of Alma and Amulek were the warning, but but the warnings were neither believed nor heeded by the people at either time. And, and you know what? They're never heeded by the majority of the people. Even those who claim to follow Jesus Christ or those in the day, back in the day who claimed to be followers of Moses. When God sends a true prophet to call these people to repentance, they almost never listen. Rather, the bearers of such forebodings were, or were persecuted instead. Could history be repeating itself in our day and we remain blind to the warning signs? Alma was certainly inspired by the Lord, whereby he knew the designs of these lawyers. A commentary on this describes the situation in detail, and we're on page 87, if you're reading along with us today, and we're at 35% of the reading for today. They knew not that Alma, or Amulek could know of their designs as they began to question him. Amulek perceived their intentions. The Spirit of the Lord was with him, and immediately he par- parried, he parried their thrusts. So that's a uh, that sword play language there. Hey, somebody's thrusting a sword at your heart, and you parry it. That means you deflect it, right? He turned their questions into barbed retorts, in which he showed their iniquities. Boldly and with a cause that was just, Amulek again called the wicked to repentance. By the trumped-up charges of which the lawyers accused the missionaries, the lawyers themselves, the sacred record uh, says, they are laying the foundation of the devil, for ye are laying traps and snares to catch the holy ones of God. In short, the lawyers together with the judges who perverted their callings were thus building upon an unfirm foundation, the superstructure of which would sooner or later crumble under the weight of sin and bring down the wrath of God upon your heads, even the destruction of this people. End quote. To allay one's, uh, one another's fears and to bolster their morale, the bravest among them strove with the exceeding cunning to twist and turn the words of Elman Amulek so that they might, as it were, catch them in the words. As the fowler sets his net to ensnare the birds, the Ammonites, sorry, it's hard for me to say that word, for their own delight, sought to entrap God's servants in meshes, in the meshes of their own making. They began to question Amulek. Certain men who saw an end to the lucrative practices in which they were engaged, if the things thereof, Elma and Amulek spoke, were accepted by the people and therein guided their relationship 
one with another, were the leaders of those who sought the destruction of God's servants. I just want to take a break real quick to remind you that if you really want to get something out of this study, please go to the podcast and the link in the description is where you can read along with me as I'm reading. You know, and it'll just be what I'm reading. I give plenty of commentary besides the the text. But if you really want to get something out of this, go to that link and it'll take you to Tumblr where I post the full text of what I read on each of these uh, podcasts, radio shows, whatever you want to call them. And read along with me. And you know, if I have open lines, you can call and ask me questions and give me statements and thoughts. You know, uh, if you do that, um, you'll find the phone number in the description of the podcast where you can call in. Um, Of course, if it goes to podcast by that point, you won't be able to call in on this particular show that went to podcast because the radio shows always air before the podcasts are uploaded. But uh, if you're interested and you see that we're uh, doing a live program, then, uh, you know, give us a call. And at the end of the reading, any questions or comments you might have for me, I will take them at that time if I have time to take them. Anyway, continuing on, they were lawyers who were trained in all the artifice, art artifice to make believe they were those who were hired as paid protectors of those those accursed accused of crime sophistry and guile were the major implements of the trade often they conspired with the judges to defeat the truth and reward the wicked cunningly devised fables enable the skillful practice of their profession which was predicated upon the wit and prevarication so we're on page 88 and once again I just encourage you to read along with me as I'm reading this the text to, to the program tonight which link is in the description of the podcast Armed with, we're on page 88, by the way. Armed with the verbal paraphernalia of their trade, these so-called defenders of truth and justice began to question Amulek about the things, the truth of which he had testified. They hoped that they could embroil him in contradicting his own or Alma's words. And this they were mistaken. They knew not the ways of the Lord. And that's commentary on the Book of Mormon by Reynolds and... I have no idea how to say that name. It's S-J-O-D-A-H-L, which I believe is uh, Indian background. Volume 3, pages 169 through 170. And that's commentary on the Book of Mormon by Reynolds and this other person that I can't, can't name. We're 51% through the reading for today. Dr. Hugh Nibley also commented on this account. It was the same old type, only clothed with public office and authority. 
The essence of their activity and success was still the clever manipulation of words, especially in questioning the prophets of the church, that by their cunning devices they might catch them in their words, that they might find witness against them. Alma chapter 10 verse 13. They would lay their legal traps, and if they failed to work, became righteously indignant. Such men are dangerous enough on their own, but when their position becomes official, either in education or government, they have a powerful lever for achieving their aims by force. As Amulek observes, the foundation of the destruction of this people is beginning to be laid by the unrighteousness of your lawyers and your judges. Alma chapter 10 verse 27. An approach to the Book of Mormon Collected Works Volume 6 by Hugh Nibley, page 367. It seems rather strange that men who were so learned in the arts and crafts and principles of civilization would deliberately use their profession in such wicked ways and for such corrupt purposes. But we see these things happening in our own, among our own people and the governments of, well... United States of America for one Alma recorded now the object of these lawyers was to get gain and they got gain according to their employ and now it was in the law of Mosiah that every man who was a judge of the law or those who were appointed to be judges should receive wages according to the time which they labored to judge those who were brought before them to be judged we're on page 89 if you're following along. And the judge received for his wages according to his time. Alma chapter 10 verses 32, chapter 11 verses 1 through 3. And now it was for the sole purpose to get gain because they received their wages according to their employ. Therefore they did stir up the people to riotings and all manner of disturbances and wickedness that they might have more employ, that they might get money according to the suits which were brought uh, before them. Therefore, they did stir up the people against Alma and Amulek. <clears throat> that's, that's Alma chapter 11, verse 20. Does this sound familiar? It is at this point that the practice of the law becomes a craft. When money and wages are are of more importance than justice, which we see that in our day as well with our own corrupt politicians and bureaucrats. Again, Dr. Nibley, or Hugh Nibley, noted that this evil subverts a nation. According as Samuel the Lamanite cautiously observes and professionals are professional toadies who could not only justify but sanctify the ways of their their affluent Nephites could name his own price um, yeah because he speaketh flattering words unto you and he saith that all is well Helaman chapter 13 verse 28 an army of Nephite lawyers made everything legal and respectable and in process laid the foundation of the destruction of this people. 
Alma chapter 10, verse 27. It is quite common for good lawyers to become more and more corrupt, but the Book of Mormon records the case of a bad lawyer turning good. Zeezrom was the foremost to accuse Amulek and Alma, he being one of the most expert among them. Alma chapter 10, verse 31. But Amulek caught him in his lying and deceiving. Alma chapter 12, verse 1. And Alma said to him, Seest that thou hast been taken in thy lying and craftiness, for thou hast not lied only unto men, or unto men only, but thou hast lied unto God. Alma chapter 12, verse 3. After such severe criticism, Zizoram began to tremble more exceedingly, for he was convinced more and more of the power of God. That's in Alma 12:7. Zizoram suffered deeply because of his sins and his craft. Sometime later, Zizoram lay sick at Sidon, and we're on page 90 if you're following along, with a burning fever which was caused by the great tribulations of his mind on account of his wickedness. For he supposed that Alma and Amulek were no more, and he supposed that they had been slain because of his iniquity. And this great sin and his many other sins did harrow up his mind until it did become exceedingly sore. Having no deliverance, therefore, he began to be scourged with a burning heat. Alma chapter 15, verse 3, and we're at 77% with, uh, through with the reading today. Zizorum repented of his misdeeds and lawyercraft and sent for Alma and Amulek whom miraculously healed him and it came to pass that Alma said unto him taking him by the hand believest thou in the power of Christ unto salvation and he answered and said yea I believe all the words that thou hast taught and Alma said if thou believes in the redemption of Christ thou canst be healed and he said yea I believe according to thy words and then Alma cried unto the Lord, saying, O Lord, our God, have mercy on this man and heal him according to his faith, which is in Christ. And when Alma had said these words, Zizorim leaped upon his feet and began to walk. And this was done to the great astonishment of all the people. And the knowledge of this went forth throughout all the land of Sidon. Alma chapter 15, verses 6 through 11. The case of the lawyer, Zizorum, unfortunately is the exception rather than the rule. Shortly before the appearance of Christ on this continent, there were many disputings among the people. And who once again was at the center of it all? But it came to pass in the twenty and ninth year, there began to be some disputings among the people and some were lifted up unto pride and boasting because of their great because of their exceeding great riches yea even unto great persecutions and we're on page 91 if you're reading along we're 86% through with the reading for today for there were many merchants in the land and also many lawyers and many officers and the people began to be 
distinguished by ranks according to their riches. Third Nephi chapter six verses ten and twelve or through twelve. How many times do people how many times do people have to be warned about lawyer craft before they get the message? Well obviously we as a people haven't gotten the message yet. I guess it's just something that only a Zion people will get the message of. And at this time, we are not a Zion people. One of the Book of Mormon critics, Dr. Thomas F. O'Day, said that too many things in the book are of American origin, to which Dr. Hugh Nibley responded, Dr. O'Day should have considered some of these things before propounding his favorite thesis on the Book of Mormon. The book is obviously an American work. Uh, American work, sorry. How obviously? Well, American sentiments permeate the work. For example, ta- taxation is oppressive and lawyers are not to be trusted. In what nation is that not true? The prophetic book... The Prophetic Book of Mormon, Collected Works, Volume 8, by Hugh Nibley, page 185. In other words, lawyer craft is the same in every time and in every nation. There are many more passages in the Book of Mormon condemning lawyers and warning the people against lawyer craft, one of the last references being, and there began to be men inspired from heaven and sent forth, preaching and testifying boldly of the sins and iniquities of the people. Now there were many of the people who were exceedingly angry because of those who testified of these things, and those who were angry were chiefly the chief judges, and they who had been high priests and lawyers. Page 92. Yea, all those who were lawyers were angry with those who testified of these things. Third Nephi chapter 6 verses 20 through 21. The legal scenario is repetitious. The law was originally designed to bring justice, equity, and persecution enforced by those who took an oath to execute their position with honesty and justice. But rap- rapidly growing seeds of lawyer craft were planted and have blossomed since the beginning of time, and and instead of opposing wickedness, the craft has become one of the main promoters of it. So that is the end of the reading for today. Once again, if you go to the link in the the description of the blogtalkradio.com forward slash Zion's Redemption Radio Network um, or you find the link in Facebook click on that it'll take you to the blog talk radio go to the link in the description and click on that it'll take you to Tumblr and you'll be able to read the text for yourself you'll be able to read along with me or just read it for yourself Uh, if you are listening to the podcast on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts you can go to the link in the description and it will take you to the Tumblr and you'll be able to read the full text of what we read every day on these programs. Thank you for listening.
when we come back on uh, next program, we're going to be reading, uh, starting on page 93 of the Four Crafts of the Devil's Kingdom, or the Four Crafts. Um, and this subsection is called Lawyercraft in the Latter Days, and we are in the section of Lawyercraft. So, um, thank you for listening to the program. Okay, so we can take phone calls now. Uh, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. And there is a chat room at blogtalkradio.com. Hold on here. Okay, it's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Zion's Redemption Radio Network. And that is for people who want to ask questions in the chat. And uh, if you do call in, um, push one, and I will see on the studio that you have called in. And that is for people who have questions or comments that want them addressed. And I will do my best to address and answer any questions that are sent my way. So we have an hour and 15 minutes left in the program today. I actually recorded that program on Monday, October 3rd, and uh, I have another one that I recorded on Monday, October 3rd for the reading portion of the program, and that will be in, uh, that'll be done, uh, we'll go live on that on October 7th at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, which is a Friday. And that is on uh, lawyer craft in modern days, uh, dealing a lot with the days of Joseph Smith. And we will be covering that 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. on the 7th. And then uh, next week, um, I will try to record more programs on Monday, uh, which is when I have time to do it. And uh, I'll try to put three programs out next week as well. So while we're waiting for people to call in, if we have anybody who has any questions or comments, I'll read some of these other things that I have done over the years. So um, I started doing podcasts in the fall of 2012 on a program called Zion's Redemption Radio. And uh, that guy doesn't do the program anymore. And in fact, it's kind of sad, but all of his programs have been erased. Um, In January of 2014, shortly after the death of Ariel Sharon, um, I started my own podcast called The Kingdom of God or Nothing, which was revamped in, I think it was 2016, or 2018, I, timelines, or, I'm not very good with timelines, but anyway, uh, and that was uh, Fundamentally Mormon, and then I changed the name of it uh, less than a year ago to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. So um, I guess I could talk about why it's significant that I started the program shortly after the death of Ariel Sharon. 
So there was a person by the name of Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori who was born in like 1896 or something like that. I don't know. He was old. <laughs> and uh, he was born in Iran, and he doesn't have a birth certificate because they didn't do those things back then. He, and he wasn't sure which year he was born. Um, they had an estimation of what happened, what he remembered in his childhood and how old he would have been. But he died in 2006. And this rabbi was one of the most venerated Kabbalist rabbis in the the nation of Israel. And he was there even before Israel became a nation in 1948. And at his funeral, there were like 350,000 people at his funeral. Well, a couple of years before he died, uh, he proclaimed that he had met with the Messiah and that he wrote down an acronym and put it in in an envelope and he said, a year after I have died, Um, I want you to open this up and you will find out what the name of the Messiah is. And they did so. And David um, Kadori, which was his son who was in his 80s at the time, because Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori was in his like 100s, like 112 or something like that. Nobody knows how old he was. But anyway, Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori, who was in his late 80s at the time, opened up the, the letter. And um, the anachronism, when they figured it out, it spelled out Yehoshua, which is the Aramaic name of Yeshua, which is the Hebrew name of Jesus. Oh, my gosh. This caused so much controversy. The Christians were freaking out. And Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori talked about the Messiah, and he talked about two Messiahs, because the Jews believe in Messiah, or Mashiach ben Yosef, which means Messiah, son of Joseph, meaning a Messiah that comes from the tribe of uh, Joseph, and the King Messiah, so that would be a military Messiah, the the Messiah ben Joseph, uh, would prepare the way for the coming of the King Messiah, who is Mashiach ben Judah or Messiah ben Judah and Messiah ben Judah's name is Yehoshua and that's the Aramaic for the Hebrew Yeshua which is like I said before in English there was a bunch of transliterations that went on and in modern English we call him Jesus and he stated that the Messiah talking about Messiah ben uh, Joseph was on the earth at this time, and he said this shortly before his death in 2006. And he said he does not know who he is at this time, but but Hashem is preparing, basically God is preparing him for his role. And that he will come on the scene shortly after the death of Ariel Sharon. Now, Ariel Sharon was in a coma for many, many, many years. Now, the Christians all flipped out because they were like, hey, what's going on with this? Like, 
by Yit, Yitzhak Kadori, he predicts or he said he met with the Messiah and he knows the name of the Messiah, speaking of Messiah ben Judah. And his name is Yehoshua or Yeshua, Jesus. And, um, and the Messiah, like mixing up Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben Judah, these Christians do, uh, the Messiah is going to come shortly after the death of Ariel Sharon. So everybody's like, oh, the second coming. Like they just forget about all of the rest of the text of scriptures. They forget about the temple. They forget that it has to be rebuilt. They, they forget about all these things because Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori said that, that the Messiah was, was coming. And so for years and years, for eight years, well, let me think, uh, eight years, seven or eight years, uh, they were saying, oh, when, when Rabbi Kador, uh, when uh, Ariel Sharon dies, that's the second coming is going to happen really soon after that. Like, let's just forget about the two witnesses and the temple being built and all the stuff. Anyway, they were pretty hyped up on it. Well, um, Rabbi Yetzal Kadori wasn't talking about Messiah ben Judah or King Messiah. He was talking about Messiah ben Yosef or the military Messiah, who would be like an Elias, like John the Baptist, that would prepare the way for the return of the King Messiah, who is Jesus. Well, I did not know any of that before 2014. But God had instructed me to start my program about the middle part of 2004, it was shortly after the death of Ariel Sharon, which is significant. Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori said that he would reach the nations through social media, which I do, and that the learned scholars would not accept him, but the humble men would but he would reach the nations with his words through social media. Which is interesting because in Isaiah, it talks about this Davidic servant sprinkling the nations with his words. Now, how does the Davidic servant, how does Isaiah know that this Davidic servant is going to somehow sprinkle his words, his message throughout the world? Like, The whole world would hear the voice of Messiah ben Joseph somehow and would be able to reach this remnant people through his through his words on social media. And Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori talked about this Messiah coming shortly after the death of Ariel, Ariel Sharon. And here I am. Okay. Now, I knew who I was in 2013, a year before. Actually, it was really close to a year before um, I showed up on the scene because in January of 2013, the father came to me and he said, kneel down before me and ask me who you are. Now, I kind of knew a little bit about who I was, but not a lot because in uh, 1995, 
1995, I was laying, I was a Baptist. I was laying in my dorm at Job Corps in Clearfield, Utah. I was very anti-Mormon. And, uh, but I was, I was a Christian, but I was laying on my bed and I remember my, my dorm mate, or the NF dorm, if anybody knows Job Corps, my, my roommate, uh, roommates, they, they were like, Hey, you want to go on, go down to the cafeteria and get some food before they close? And I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm just going to lay here. So they left and I'm by myself and I'm laying on the top bunk, just pondering over things. And all of a sudden, against my will, not even knowing this was going to happen, I was taken up in the spirit and had an out-of-body experience. Now, I'd had these before. God had showed me many things through these visions where I was taken up in the spirit. But this time, I was with Jesus Christ. And we went to the temple in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is the temple for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. And Jesus took me into that temple, and he showed me around. He took me through the temple, and we ended up in the middle tower on the eastern side of the temple. It is the highest room in the temple. And for many years, I thought that that was the Holy of Holies. I found out later that the Holy of Holies that everybody uses or talks about is actually outside of the celestial room on the south, uh, southeast side of the celestial room. There's a room that you go into, and that's the anti-room. And then you turn right, and the celestial room's back there. And you can kind of see it through the doors. But there's a bunch of very large vases in the way because it's locked off, so people don't go in there. Now, the place that I went into was the middle tower on the eastern side, and I walked up, and there was a stairway that went up, and then there was like a doorway that didn't have a door on it, and Jesus said, go into this room. And when I walked into that room, it was like walking into the love of God times infinity, like overwhelming, all-powerful presence of God, like ineffable, undescribable. So I go into that room, and like before I went in, I saw the the layout of the room. I could see how it, laid, it was laid out. Um, I did not realize uh, at that time that there were some windows. If you look on the uh, the north and south side of that tower there's actually windows up there that that add light into that room and I've looked at diagrams and all this and and like that room doesn't exist as far as the church lets you know about but it's there so I went into that room and the father told me a very simple message that I would be the last prophet before the return of Jesus Christ And then all of a sudden, I was back in my body with such speed that, like, I can't even, like, it wasn't the speed of light, but, so between Salt Lake City Temple and where I lived in Job Corps, probably about 15, 20 miles, and I was back in my body as fast as you can snap. 
like it was a blur and all of a sudden I'm back in my body and it's just like boom, you know? And I was like, what in the heck just happened? Like I used to drive around the Salt Lake Temple back in my golf days on my way to a place called Confetti's, which was a gothic dance club that I could go to when I was 16. Arius, my son is trying to talk to me. I am talking on the phone, Arius. Amberly, share it with him. And you are not supposed to be eating in the living room. Go out. Go to the kitchen. You don't need to be playing that. I might take care of them. Anyway, so I used to drive around Temple Square before the main street was made into, like, a place where you could walk around in a fountain and all of that. And we used to play Nine Inch Nails songs. And yell at people on the sidewalk. <laughs> it was like a ritual every Friday night, I guess, or Saturday night. I was not into Mormonism at all uh, because of reasons I'm not going to get into on this program. And uh, and I became Baptist and all that. So this thing was like really confusing to me. This thing that happened, and um, I didn't know what to think about it. And then um, I became homeless after Job Corps and uh, became very suicidal, very depressed, which I've dealt with. Uh, I've dealt with su- suicidal ideation. I, the first time I told my mom I wanted to kill myself, I was nine years old. And it's because of things that happened to me when I was a child. Um, abandonment, neglect, abuse, stuff I'm not going to get into on this program. But um, I had uh, become homeless. I started using drugs. I started drinking because I just wanted to die, and I was too scared to kill myself. Honestly, I didn't know what was beyond the veil. Uh, I didn't want to go to hell because I murdered myself. Uh, But it got to the point where I just I gave up, and um, I got the scars of what happened that day so many years ago in 96. After my, uh, my friend had come home because he had forgotten his lunch, he found me uh, on a tarp on the top of uh, I put a tarp down so I wouldn't make a mess and I was in a beanbag chair anyway he found me called the ambulance saved my life after that I wrote God a letter and I said if you I told him how screwed up I was and I was just just because of the reactions of all the crap that had happened to me. Uh, I'd been homeless when I was 16. A uh, lot of them, a lot of mass. Anyway, but um, I, uh, I told him how screwed up I was, and I asked him to forgive me. And I told him if he would heal me, speaking of my drug addiction and my alcoholism, and show me the truth, I would serve him for the rest of my life. 
I wrote this down in a letter because I did not feel worthy to pray. But I kept this letter with me in my top pocket. I still have it. It's hard to read because I was homeless after that, and I got stuck out in a blizzard and completely soaked. And uh, the snow was coming down. I was walking into it trying to get to a place about five miles away where I thought maybe I could get some shelter because there was nowhere for me to go as a homeless person. And uh, luckily, I had some Carhartt bib uh, overalls on, some insulated overalls and a coat, but it was soaked all the way through to my skin, and it was it turned to ice on me. And uh, I'm lucky to be alive, but that note was in my pocket, and it got soaked. Uh I was able to uh, dry it out, and uh, it's hard to read, but I can still read it. Anyway, but um, I told God if he would show me the truth and and heal me for the rest of my life. And a couple weeks ago, well, it wasn't that long. It was like in October of 96, and it wasn't long after that that I met Elder King and Elder Bowman as I was leaving my friend's apartment where I was staying to go watch Romeo and Juliet with Claire Danes and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. And uh, Elder Bowman and Elder King, I think King was from Nebraska. I can't remember where the other guy was from, but it was in Layton, Utah in 96. If anybody knows who they are, Tom thanks. <laughs> And um, anyway, so they kept bugging me about like, hey, can we like talk to you? Can we share a message with you? Like, and I would say, oh, well, I've got something to go or do and uh, come back later or maybe and whatever. This went on for three weeks. And I finally let them in because they were so persistent. And when they told me about Joseph Smith and the first vision and the fact that he had prayed to God and he was uh, that God was no respecter of persons and that he, you know, in the scriptures it says, if you lack wisdom, ask God that gives to all men freely and will not scold. Um, you know, that they, they God will answer your prayers. And Joseph Smith knew this and he went and he believed it. And he went and asked God, and God told him not to join any of the churches. And he had a personal visitation, a vision. We call it the first vision. And there's a bunch of complexities with the first vision, but whatever. I felt the spirit when they told me about that. I felt the spirit of peace and joy and love, and a, a spirit that I had not felt in a very long time. I was very upset. I was very depressed a lot. Um, there was abandonment, neglect, and all kinds of abuse that I won't get into. I was very angry. I was, uh, let's see, I was 19 years old. And I felt this spirit of peace that I ha- was not used to. And Elder King and Elder Bowman, uh, they said, you know, if you if you'd like to pray about this, they taught me how to pray, how they pray. <laughs> and I prayed about it. And uh, after they had left and it was so powerful, it was like 
when I knelt down and I was asking God if the Book of Mormon was true and if Joseph Smith was a prophet, it was like hot oil starting at the top of my head, flowing down through my whole soul, like it was cleaning out my soul. And it was this overwhelming, powerful love of God and this this burning, cleansing, not painful, but this burning, cleansing feeling of uh, a, like hot oil mixed with love. <laughs> and when this was, when I was completely enveloped in this love, I heard, I heard angels singing praises to God, billions of them. And at that moment, I was completely healed of all of my drug addictions and all of my alcoholism. I'd ask God if he'd show me the truth and heal me, I would serve him for the rest of my life. And no matter what stupid arguments anti-Mormons have or ex-Mormons have, whatever comes up where they think, oh, this is a this is a proof that Joseph Smith was whatever. I cannot deny what happened that night with me personally. I was completely healed in an instant. Because of my conversion, I started going to church. I did not have church clothes. I would walk into uh, the sacrament with my best clothes, and they were all goth clothes. (laughs) And, um, yeah, the LDS church wouldn't help me. The people that I was living with, there were a bunch of uh, witches and warlocks. Like, they were into black magic and all that fun stuff. They even had an altar that they would give some goddess, I don't even know what her name was, uh, offerings. And it was just really messed up. Anyway, but because of my conversion... I got kicked out on the streets. That, that's why I was homeless. That's why I had that letter in my pocket. That's why I was out in that building. And I was homeless from the middle of December through to the end of January. Hold on here. Sorry, I had to mute myself because I was about ready to sneeze. Anyway, so um, so my uh, my grandfather, who was LDS, and uh, my my grandfather was laying in bed, and he was a double leg amputee of World War II, so he had both of his legs blown off below the knee, and he'd lay in bed, and I guess one more laying there just thinking about things before he goes and puts his legs on and starts his day and he heard an audible voice and it's, he he was told to find me nobody knew where I was I was homeless uh, nobody nobody cared the LDS church wouldn't help me my friends wouldn't help me like my family wouldn't help me I, I was just homeless I didn't know what I was going to do but uh, I'd go to church and, uh, and yeah, I just had no idea what was going to happen to me. But I knew that Joseph Smith was a true prophet. And 
my grandfather heard heard this audible voice and he said I never heard an audible voice before this. He'd had spiritual experiences but not like this. And God told him to find me and send me on a mission. Well, by the time they find me, uh, my mom like gets this these marching orders, and my mom my mom will do what she's told because she wants to be in the will, and she's a greedy person. Sorry, I haven't spoke to my mom in a couple of years, and there's reasons for that, which I won't get into on this radio program. Um, Eliza, can you go get me before I can blow my nose? Thank you. Okay, live radio, isn't it fun? Anyway, so um, they find me, and my my grandfather um, comes up to pick me up, and he gives me two options. He's going to help me out, but there's two two things that I could choose from. Now, my grandfather knew that I had, I had to get my name removed from the LDS church back in '84. I was very anti-Mormon. I had been baptized in the LDS church in 86 when I was nine years old because my grandparents threatened my mom that she would be out of the will if she didn't get me baptized. So I was nine years old instead of eight. And, uh, but like we didn't go to church a whole lot, but like we did a little as a teenager, but I was, I was with my family on and off. Like, it was just a mess. That my whole, like, I'm going to tell you this, and you probably won't believe it, but I actually moved over 100 times before I was in. Like, every three or four months, I was, like, being uprooted, sent somewhere else to live with some other people. But um, I, I believe about their lives about Joseph Smith and then there was some other stuff too like my mom used to get up and fast in testimony meetings and tell everybody her horrible struggles dealing with this out of control teenager because I was pissed because of the things that had happened to me and the things that she allowed to happen to me and she would get sympathy points from people telling everybody how horrible I was yeah, I was angry, but it was because of the stuff that was happening. And like in tenth grade, I I wanted I wanted so badly just to stay home and be with my mother and not be uprooted again. That I enroll. I was uh, on the Star Trek club. I was in the ROTC, and I was on swim team. And my, my the assistant coach to uh, the swim team would pick me up every morning. 4.30 in the morning and we would go or go swimming I was the only one he did this to did this for and we would go swim every single morning uh, it was well it, it was swimming on uh, Tuesdays and Wednesdays and we lifted weights uh, Monday Wednesday and Friday and then school would and then we had practice every night after school. I would be gone from like 4.30 in the morning until like 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. And then I would just go to bed. And get, so I wasn't even in the house hardly. I would sit 
the couch in the living room just so that uh, I could be up and ready to go. Because I wanted to be home, but I didn't want to give them a reason for me to be kicked out again for no reason. But whether or not I was doing really good or not, one day uh, my mom picked me up from school with all my stuff packed in the back of the car, and I told my friends goodbye, and uh, I told my uh, my coach goodbye, and I disappeared on the face of the planet again, which is the way it always was. Even with my grandparents, they didn't want to see me cry, so uh, I would be out playing and doing stuff, and then uh, I'd come home, and they'd be like, oh, you're going with these people today, and then I would just be forced to get in the car, and I'm off to wherever it was that I was going this time. Or tricked into tricked into different places. Uh, like for instance, I was in a drug and rehab center when I was fourteen. I was not an alcoholic. I did not even drink alcohol at that time. I never had tried drugs, but it didn't matter because that's where I was going to be, because that's where they could could send me. And I would have no notification this was about to happen sudden oh, we're going to go somewhere, and uh, and I'd go into a place. And, like, for that particular place, there was, like, a padded cell. And they threw me in this padded cell uh, while my mom unpacked my uh, her vehicle with my things that I would uh, keep at this uh, drug and alcohol rehab center for youth. And, uh, you know, I was just there. Anyway, so um, I don't know why I'm going off on these tangents, but um, my grandfather said to me, um, I will pay for your college. I will get you into college, and I will pay for your college. And he even said, and I think, I don't know what he was thinking. He had a lot of money, though. Uh, he owned Opal Mountain Mining. And uh, he had a lot of money from other investments. But he was going to get me a room at the Little America in Salt Lake City, Utah. And that's where I was going to live while I went to college. That is an expensive hotel to stay in for one night, let alone for four years of college. Or I could go on a mission. I think he gave me that option because he knew that I was so adamantly opposed to the LDS church that I had tried to take my name out of the LDS church. But but uh, he gave me this option where I could go on a mission. And I said, I'll, I'll go on the mission because I told God that I would serve him for the rest of my life. So I noticed that we have a caller, uh, area code 804. If you have a question or comment uh, and you'd like to break in to the story that I'm telling, push one and I'll see that you have a question or comment. If you don't want to come on the air but you do have a question or comment, uh, for anybody, you can go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Zion's Redemption Radio Network and there's a chat room there for you to ask your questions and make your comments. But if you have called in, Push one, and I will. Uh, I'll unmute your mic, and you can tell me where you're from, and your first name, and then your question or comment. So anyway, so I told God that I would serve Him for the rest of my life, and and my grandfather has 
this uh, visitation where he's told audibly by, by God to send me on a mission. And so I chose the mission. So in 97, I get my endowment out in the Salt Lake City Temple because that was the temple where God had taken me to and where God told me who I was, uh, partly. And, uh, and I got my, uh, my uh, patriarchal blessing. And in my patriarchal blessing, it says that I have been given the greatest gift that God has to bestow, the gift of eternal life. I did not understand what that meant, did not know what that meant. And for my mission and for years after that, after my mission, I kept asking God what it meant. And I asked a stake president and I asked a stake patriarch what that meant. And they both told me that it meant that I had my calling and election made sure. When I would ask God, how in the world can a drug addict who is only like from the time of my conversion which was in uh, December of 96 to the time of my patriarchal blessing in April of 97 is not that long. And I'm being told I've been given the greatest gift that God has to bestow. Like it didn't make any sense to me. And when I would ask God about it, he would whisper to me, it's not because of who you are on this earth. It's because of who you were before you came here. But he never would tell me who I was. So I kept bugging him about the calling and election, made, uh, about the uh, having the gift of eternal life, which is tied to having a calling and election made sure. And in 2003, as I was asking for the who knows how many times, I was taken up in the flesh to a place off this planet. There was a place, uh, there was a meadow, there was a mountain, there was a stream. I was told to wash off in the stream. I could feel the water as I washed off and wetted my hair and my face down. I could feel the breeze. I could smell the, the, the sagebrush and the dirt and the meadow grasses. And God said, follow that trail. And I followed that trail, which went up along the base of this cliff and then went around and came up to the top of this cliff. And then I continued to hike up this mountain, which is a bare mountain covered with sagebrush, not like this, like, rocky mountain. It, it, like, it was steep, but it was steep on the sides. But as I walked along, and it was rounded on the top, and there was like one lone tree up there on the top of this mountain. And I continue walking, and I'm following this trail for a very long period of time. And it continues, and it was it was flat for a while, and it started going up and going up and going up. And I went into the trees. There was a bunch of pine trees in this forest. And I kept going, and at the top of this mountain, it was a clearing, and I, and I, I saw this this temple not like not like a bountiful temple or a salt lake temple or it, it wasn't even as big as the monticello temple and those are small temples the smaller ones but it was a temple and i walked up to the temple and it said on the doors enter in and obtain your calling and election 
So I took my shoes off and I opened the door and I walked into the foyer and it was, it was beautiful. It was like the white walls were glowing with their own radiance. There was a chandelier in the foyer that had the, like something to the, like the rocks, Jared, which is interesting because ancient Jewish tradition actually teaches that Noah lit the inside of the ark with stones that, that glow. Now, the brother of Jared lived back in that day and age. They would have known about those things, and that these are still part of Jewish tradition, that these stones, God gave these stones to Jared, uh, to, uh, to Noah to put inside the ark to light up the inside of the ark. So when Jared, the brother of Jared, Mohanrei Moyankmer, he wants to light up the inside of the barges as recorded in Ether, the Book of Ether in the Book of Mormon. The reason why he gives them these stones and says, can you touch these stones so that I may have light? Because he already knew that this had happened for Noah. But the chandeliers that were in the lobby of that temple were shining bright with these stones that were like, and they could have been the stones of, Jer- uh, of the brother of Jared, the stones of Mahanrei Moriankamer. I don't know. Anyway, I walk down this hallway, and there's a vase, and there's this table with a mirror, and there's white roses there, and this is why I love white roses. Like, my wife, she knew I was having a really hard time last month, and she went out and got me 14 white roses. I don't know why 14. That's just what she did, because it reminds me of my experience in the Temple of the Father. And I walked to the end of the hallway, and there was this curtain, and it hung on uh, hung on a rod. And when I put my hand through the curtain, the, the curtain was like thick. It was like velvet, but it was like four inches thick. Like I I don't even know. Like I, just something that was very different and odd that I like noticed. The, the thickness of this curtain and I walked into that room and it was like when I had walked into that room in the uh, 1995 in the middle tower on the upper portion uh, the middle tower on the eastern side of the uh, the Salt Lake Temple where it was like overwhelming love times infinity it was like that just over like if I could try to describe it it would be like you're freezing to death and then you are like thrust into a hot spring, I guess, like just the difference. It it was so powerful. And I saw this light at the other end of the room and I walked towards it. And when I came and started to come into this glory, this overwhelming light, I saw that there was a man standing, one man standing in the light and as I got closer I I recognized him it was the father and I fell flat on my face before him hold on can you guys you guys realize I'm doing a radio show right now right if you want to be in here you need to be quiet I'm in the living room sitting on the couch talking about this stuff 
and I've got a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a three-year-old in here with me. Anyway, so I fall flat on my face, and he says, he says to get up, and he says, come, come near, that, uh, thou good and faithful servant. And I get up, and he's standing off of, he's like about three feet off the ground. But I figure he's probably about six feet tall. I, I don't know. But anyway, so he's three feet off the ground. I go to him, and he opens his arms, like the Christus statue at the visitor center in, uh, in Salt Lake City, Utah. You've got the Jesus, and he's opening his arms and looking down. The facing, right, on that statue, but that's the, the posture he took, opening his arms to accept me. And I went to him, and I embraced him in the flesh. I wrapped my arms around him. I felt his flesh and the density of his body. And it was a very emotional experience for me. And he told me to kneel down before him. And I said, what What are you doing? Because I'm like, you know, what's going on? And he says, uh, I'm sealing you up into myself. It may be sealed up unto eternal life. So I kneel before him. He puts his hands on my head. And as he starts to speak, light starts to emanate from me. So I've got my head down in front of him. He's got his hands on the the back part of my head as my head is down and I'm looking down at my arms and my my chest kneeling before him and light is emanating out of me so much and it surprised me and I did not hear what he was saying all I knew was that he was sealing me up unto himself that I might be sealed up unto eternal life which is what my patriarchal blessing talked about, that I have been given the gift of eternal life. And when I asked him uh, previous and after this, how is it possible that these things could happen for me? He would tell me it's not because of who you are. It's because of who you were before you came here. But he would never tell me who I was. But he did reveal very, very many things to me. He revealed to me the progression of the gods. He revealed to me who God the Eternal Father was and, and how he became who he is and how where we all come, like just a ton of really deep stuff. I would be taken up in the flesh, or not in the flesh, in the spirit, and he would take me to these places and he would teach me things when I was asking him questions about things. And this happened from 2003 until 2013. In 2013, I was crying before him, asking him how certain things were happening to me. And he says, kneel before me and ask me who you are. And I knelt before him and I said, Father, who am I? And he took me up in in the spirit And he showed me a vision of the past. And I was like up in the air looking down on this congregation, a vast congregation of people. And we came down to this platform. And there were 12 men standing in front of this platform. And they were called the mighty and strong ones. There are 12 
that stand before the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And they their thrones of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost were on this platform. And I saw these, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost standing up before their thrones. And I was told that for each earth there are 15 who are considered mighty and strong. And this includes God the Creator, who is the Father, God the Redeemer, who is Jesus, and God the Witness, who we call the Holy Ghost. And behind these who are called mighty and strong, there are the noble and great ones. And I saw God the Witness rebel against the Father and the Son. In Hebrew, his name is Hillel ben Shekhar. Latin, in Latin, they call him Lucifer. What it means in Hebrew and in Latin is bearer of light and truth. The one who rebelled, the reason why Lucifer was called a god is because he held the office of God the witness. The one who was chosen as the Ruach HaKodesh, or God the Witness, or the Holy Ghost. And he rebelled because of his, because of his pride and his arrogance and because of previous uh, interactions he had had with Jesus, Yeshua, Yehoshua. He rebelled against the Redeemer and the Father. He tried to usurp authority. He was supposed to be God the witness, and he wanted to be God the redeemer, and he rebelled. And he, and he started this war in heaven. And most of the people, all the people except for those who are called the elect of God, were deceived by this individual, this bearer of light and truth. And those of us who were elect, and the elect never left the side of Yeshua or the Father, we stayed with them and we taught with our testimonies that uh, how the plan of damnation it was wrong and like we needed to do this other thing, the plan of salvation, which was the original plan. And there was this rebellion and it was thought, it was fought through not bullets and guns, but testimony and power. And at the end of this rebellion, Lucifer had his name and title stripped from him, Hillel ben Shachar in Hebrew, and he became Hasatan or the accuser of the brethren, the accuser, more, more purely the accuser of God. And he was cast out, and there was about half of them who were called mighty and strong that were cast out with him, and a third of the hosts of heaven were cast out with him as well. I hope you guys don't have uh, my three-year-old who's standing right by me coughing his little brains out. I think he drank something, and it went down the wrong pipe. Hi. Okay, go tell Emmett or Olivia. <laughs> anyway, so um, 
so after uh, Lucifer becomes Satan, and he had his he had a new title, and he had his title stripped from him, and he fell. He was cast down to the earth. The Father and the Son walked down among those of us who were the remaining, who were called the mighty and strong ones. And they chose me to take the place of the witness. The witness of the Father and the Son. So when when the Father kept telling me, it's not because of who you are, like in this life, it's because of who you were before you came here. The reason why I have seen the Father in the Son in the flesh and embraced them in the flesh is because I am an eyewitness of the Father and the Son. I am an apostle of both the Father and the Son because I saw Jesus Christ after I stood up. Jesus Christ was standing there too after the Father had laid his hands upon my head and conferred this power upon me and filled me up into himself. Jesus Christ was there as well, and I hugged him, I embraced him, I felt his flesh, and we sat down and we talked for quite a while about my life, like questions that I had. At the time, I was very lonely. I was over-the-road truck driver. Like when I came home from my mission, I didn't have anywhere to go. But because I was a, I had gotten my degree in advanced diesel mechanics at Job Corps back between 94 and 96, I did have BDL, and I was 21 when I got home from my mission. So I went and I became an over-the-road truck driver, which was very lonely. But I, I'd always wanted to be a truck driver because I wanted to see the country. I wanted to travel, and I loved it. But, like, you don't go to singles wards when you're a truck. And I was so dense. Like, I'd go to these wards all over North America. And, like, I would try to figure out where I was going to be and what truck stop I would be at on Saturday night or Sunday morning. And I would call around and try to get uh, a bishop or a secretary to, like, hey, I'm going to be at this truck stop. Would you come come pick me up? And, like, so I, I have been to church, LDS churches and other churches all throughout North America. And, like, it was funny because I was just happy to be at church, you know. And there'd be these girls, and they would be flirting with me, and I'm so dense that I don't even realize that they're flirting. And, like, after the fact, after I'm already gone, I'd be like, I think she was flirting with me. Like, but I don't have her number or anything because I'm, I'm a moron. I'm so dense. And um, it was just I was lonely. And, like, I would go to the same uh, churches more than a couple of times, spread out over many years. Like, there was a couple churches that I went to. Uh, El Paso was one. Um, Laredo was one. I'd go to one up in Toledo. Um, there was there were different ones that I'd go to more than once. But most of the time, it was just like, wherever I was at, I'd try to go to church wherever I was at. So, um, So anyway, I, I was asking Jesus about, like, how am I going to find a wife? Like, I'm on the road. I'm, and doing all these. He says, I will prepare her. She, I'm preparing her at this time. I will lead you unto her. Um, just stay, dr- drive a truck until I release you. from. There was, 
there's a whole bunch that he talked to me about. Anyway, so so I come back down on the earth, and in, I'm in the LDS church, and I'm told, don't talk about sacred experiences because they're too sacred. So I only told some of my family and some of my close friends, and I pretty much kept it to myself. Well... In 2013, when God told, showed me who I am and why I was called as the witness of the Father and the Son, he told me to be bold with my witness. And so some people think that I'm arrogant because I talk about these things. It's not arrogance. I still don't know why he chose me because I am not a refined individual. Not even close. I actually enjoy offending people because of their stupid traditions, which is what we talked about in the program tonight. We talked about it on Monday with these stupid traditions of these lawyers. And we're going to talk about it on Friday with these stupid traditions of these people in modern day who put a hedge around the line. They try to tell you, oh, if you do this thing, you're going to be condemned uh, for it. Like, for instance, if you... Uh, decide to get a tattoo. Now, I know tattoos are against Torah. There's a reason for that. Because of the pagan worship, but uh, and, and you shouldn't get tattoos because, especially if it's for a pagan reason, but there is no... My, my, uh, my companion, my mission companion, Tyson Smith, Elder Smith, he got a Superman tattoo after his mission. And there was nothing wrong with that. And before Gordon B. Hinckley said, no tattoos. You know, so then people condemned him. Oh, you've got a tattoo. You must be a horrible person. Elder Smith was not a horrible person. He just, for some reason, he wanted to get the ass Superman tattoo. Now, I hear a general conference just happened last weekend, and now all of a sudden there's no prohibition against tattoos or having a second piercing or long hair or whatever. But like from Gordon B. Hinckley all the way up until uh, Thomas Monson and now Russell M. Nelson, like, oh, it's been forbidden, you know. But these are not God's laws. They are the commandments of men. These are the cultural traditions of men. And I love to offend the traditions of men, much like Jesus Christ did. I am not refined like these these Babylonian businessmen who have hijacked the church. Or the whitewashed version of Joseph Smith, who they want you to believe, not the uh, fist-fighting, boot-kicking, drinking, drinking and wine version of Joseph Smith that actually was the reality. He was a prophet. Guess who else was a prophet who drank? Noah. And guess what? When Noah got so drunk off the, the, the vineyard that he planted, and, and uh, Canaan, Ham's son, so his grandson, comes in and knew his wife, which means he had sex with his wife probably as she was drunk. So Noah curses Canaan while he's drunk. 
Now, was Noah a prophet of God? Yeah, he was. Did he drink? Yes, he did. Joseph Smith drank too. When I asked God, like, about this, he told me it's not a sin to drink. It's a sin to be a drunkard, which means you get drunk over and over and over again. And he gave me some advice, and he said it's okay to drink, but when you start to feel the effects of the alcohol, meaning when you start to get a buzz, stop drinking and drink something else. But Heber J. Grant is the one that changed the word of wisdom into a commandment, and he is the one who put the prohibitions in place, where before the word of wisdom was not given by way of command, but was a, a word of wisdom or some advice. Just like the advice that, that the father gave me when I asked him about alcohol, he says, when you feel the effects of the alcohol, put it down and drink something else. Like they used to drink wine, not grape juice. Okay, the process to uh, to stop the fermentation of wine didn't happen until like I think the 1900s. If you were going to have grape juice back in the, back in the day, you had to drink it right after it was crushed, because it does not take long for wine to uh, for grape juice to become wine, and there was no way to stop it. When it, in, I think it's in DNC section 29 where it talks about um, it talks about uh, do not use wine or strong drink for your sacrament unless it is made new among you. He says wine or strong drink. Bruce R. McConkie in the section heading he said this is the revelation where we're we're told to use water for our sacrament. Nowhere. In the words of that revelation, does it say water ever at all, ever? But even more interesting than that, he says make wine or strong drink, which is whiskey and bourbon and gin and whatever else, strong drink, for your sacrament. And in the same revelation, Jesus says, I will not partake of the fruit of the earth. Until uh, until I come again, right? And there's going to be this great big old feast with a whole bunch of wine, much to the chagrin of all of these modern day traditionalist Mormons who think that it is a sin to use wine or strong drink for your sacraments. When people put the traditions that they put around God's laws and rules, it is offense. It's an offense to God, to God the Father, God the Son, or God the Witness. And partly the reason why it's such a problem is because this is how iniquity happens. This is how apostasy happens in the church. And this is why Doctrine and Covenant section 85, verses 6 and 7, I think, talk about Jesus saying, I will send one mighty and strong to set the house of God in order. Not the church, the house of God in order. And why is it out of order? Because it 
it went out of order, but they they want to tell you, oh, it, it's not out of order. Everything's fine because they have this power over the people, and that power comes with tithing that they can use to get rich off to grind the faces of the poor. Now, in the restored gospel, we are told it is not given for one man to own that which is above another, wherefore the whole world lieth in sin, and if you will be as Zion people, you must be equal in all things. But they sit upon their plush velvet thrones, and they are carried to the conference center in their beautiful cars from their houses, like Russell M. Nelson. So (coughs) when the prophet of the church becomes the, the president of the church, becomes the president of the church, they move him for security reasons out of his home where he lives. And they put him in a condo. So when Russell M. Nelson became the president of the church, his house went up for sale. Now, his house was in uh, North Salt Lake up on the bench. And oh, my gosh, he had the most beautiful home. He had white carpets. You know, he was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and left next in line. I mean, why wouldn't he have white carpets? But like this, this beautiful home. I think, I could be wrong, but this is a while ago, but I think it was, I think it was selling for four or five million dollars. Now, President Uchtdorf, I like the guy. I mean, he seems pretty sincere. But he has a home in Salt Lake. He has a home in Davis County. Up in it's either Battleford or Salt Lake, and he has a home in Hewitt City. And they're all multi-million-dollar homes. See, I've had a list of where their homes are, and I can go on Google and and see their homes, whatever, for a long time. I know where they live. I don't care. I I don't even care about like talking to these men. I know that they hear the words that are coming out of my mouth. I know that they have the correlation department listening to me, um, whatever. But you know what? I have met a lot of these men because in uh, 2004, God told me to write a letter to President Hinckley and tell him about my 1995 experience. And so I did. I wrote two letters, and I was like, I don't know. Should I write this one or should I send this one? I was like, I, they were pretty long, 16, 20 pages, something like that. And I drew diagrams of of the of this room that I considered the Holy of Holies. So I consider that room the Holy of Holies of the Father and the one that's just south, south of the celestial room, the Holy of Holies of the Son. Now, who knows if they're even there anymore because they just, they've gutted the temple. But, you know, these, these were rooms back in the day. Anyway, so I write this letter to President Hinckley. And by the way, it's interesting. I was actually dating his great niece, and we used to go to uh, the Ensign Peak Ward in the Smith Memorial Building, which is where the prophet of the church goes to. Gordon B. Hinckley went there. Uh, 
Thomas Monson, he would go there sometimes. Mostly, he would go to his old ward uh, over around 33rd, and uh, I think it was like 17th East, 33rd South, somewhere around that area. I can't remember. It's been a while. But anyway, so, um, so like, I, I knew President Hinckley. I was dating his great niece, um, and my grandparents, I, I think I said this before. I've said it in the past, but they served seven missions for the LDS Church. My grandfather was on the corporation committee for the church. Like, he had a bunch of positions, right? And he knew President Hinckley and Eldon Tanner and Bruce McConkie and all of these guys. And they served seven missions, and they were one of only two families in the church that were allowed to take their daughters with them because my grandpa had lost his legs in World War II, and he uh, had a pension. My grandma was a Navy nurse. She had a pension. They didn't have to work, so they would go on missions for the church. So I write this letter to President Hinckley. I tell him, you know, I am. he knows who I am, but I tell him who I am. And I give him uh, the details, the, the diagrams that I wrote up, the pictures. I told him about the experience. I send that in on a Monday in February of 2004 because the father told me to. And on Thursday, I get a call. And, and I didn't realize they have like a, a meeting on Thursday in the temple. Well, on Thursday, I get a call from my state president. He says, hey, somebody wants to meet you on Sunday at church. Can you please be in the sacrament room a half an hour before the meeting begins so they can meet you? He wouldn't tell me who it was. So I'm sitting there with my girlfriend, 2004, this is before we got engaged or anything. I married her in, uh, well, we were engaged, uh, we are supposed to be married on May 25th, 2005. And she canceled that morning. And then uh, I broke up with her, and then we got back together like a year later. And uh, we got married on June 27, 2006. But anyway, so um, so I'm sitting there with, with this woman who would become my, my future wife, and now ex-wife. That didn't lie. I was never good. I was a truck driver. I was marrying into the prophet's family. I was never good enough for anybody in their family. But anyway, so um, so I'm sitting there with her, and in, in walks out Tom Perry. And, like, it was interesting because, like, I the spirit got so strong before he walked in. I was sitting on the last row. Um, the last row on the... Uh, well, whatever. I think it was the last row, but like the the entrance to the sacrament room was like right at our backs. So I feel this really strong presence of God, and I hear the foyer door open and close, and I hear the walking and in walks El Palm Perry. And like, if you've never met El Palm Perry, he is a very large man. He's got the biggest, cheesiest car salesman grin like a trusting like somebody you would trust but like this and and i'd seen him around 
Temple Square. You know, I'd, I'd met him before. He walks in. He, like, beelines it to me, and he's like, how are you doing? And then we just start talking. He starts asking me questions and stuff. And, like, it was funny because my ex, who was just my girlfriend at the time, had left her glasses in the car. And she didn't. She had no idea who I'm talking to, right? And she's, like, quiet. She's not saying it. And I was sitting there, and then um, he was, like, I was at the end of the pew. And I'm talking to him, and she's on the other side of me, like, trying to, try to see who this person is who's very adamant and talking and asking me questions and all this fun stuff and it's funny because we're talking for a while and like the singles ward Hawarden Park Ward in West Valley Utah and these people start coming in from from you know the singles ward and like I'm sitting there talking to L. Tom Perry and everybody's like what's he doing here why is he talking to Mark? What? It was just, it was interesting, right? And at the end of the meeting, he says, when sacrament is over, go to the stake president, and he has something for you. And he slaps me on the back, and he says, well, God's the one that chooses his property, because we sure don't. But, like, just this, he was so happy. And, like, so the meeting's about to start, and he goes and sits on the stand, and he says, I just want you guys to hold your meeting the way you're going to hold it. And then um, Elder, this Tonga guy, I can't remember what his name was, but he's cool. (laughs) He was going to be the last speaker, and he says, uh, just, you know, give your talk, but uh, keep it short. And uh, give me some time to talk at the end of the meeting. And then he talked about how God chooses prophets. And it was it was good, you know. And then while we were singing the, the, the closing hymn, he gets up and he walks out and he goes out in the foyer and he disappears off into, in his car into wherever he goes. And then after the meeting, everybody runs up to me. Oh, is El Tom Perry to, uh, talking to you? And, like, it was kind of awesome. The experience was pretty awesome. But uh, they know who I am. They have known who I am. Now, we have 90 seconds left on the live streaming portion of the radio program, and I actually do have to get to work. But if you have a question or comment, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917 917- Eight eight nine eight eight two seven, and if you call in, uh, if you don't call in, it's going to drop off. You won't hear the rest of it. We got sixty seconds, so the only way you can hear the rest. Then I, I'm going to be done here in a minute. But the questions and comments, eight 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 two seven, and if you do call in, push one, and I will bring you on the air live. And uh, if not, then I will just end the program. We have 40, 39 seconds left in the program. Um, for the person that is uh, the era code 804, when I play the, uh, the end of music, um, I will take your call off the air to see if there's anything that you wanted to say. 
uh, just so I don't bring you on the air. Unless you push one, then I'll uh, then I'll know that you want to come on the air. But we do have one caller, and we have 14 seconds left in 10 seconds left in the live streaming portion of the radio program. So thank you everyone for calling and for listening to the program. Please remember to share these things, and we will go to the uh, the end music. So all right. Thank you for listening. Take care, everyone. Bye.